Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 12th of January, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, we've got Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, Alex Thompson from Eastern Approaches and Ian Davis from In This Together. So uh, it's another, it's going to be another packed programme. We're going to get straight on here with uh, the World Economic Forum, who have released their Global Risk Report 2022, and uh, they held a press conference on that. Um, so, yeah, and uh, well, what are they talking about? Well, experts, don't you know? Experts surveyed all across the world, mostly in Europe, though, um, and uh, they are very worried about stuff, uh, as you would be, because these days, you know, you don't plan policy. You get worried about things, and then you tell the public that you're worried about things. You get them worried about things, and then before you know it, your legislation stuff just goes through. Uh, global experts, is that stakeholders? Stakeholders, yes. Stakeholders. It should say stakeholders, right? Yes. So let's have a look and see what they're worried about. Well, first of all, in the next uh, two years, they're, they're particularly worried about extreme weather. Uh, and then they're worried about livelihood crises. Uh, and then climate action failure comes third. Social cohesion erosion. I mean, you know, the, the, the narratives around Brexit, the narratives around COVID have done nothing to uh, break up social cohesion, have they, Patrick? No, nothing at all. Neither has COVID policy. No. Uh, infectious diseases, mental health deterioration. Uh, of course, mental health deterioration came as a result of COVID policy, uh, apart from anything else. But that's something that we've got to be worried about for the next two years and so on, right down to the asset bubble burst, which is uh, at the bottom of that list. Then if we look at two to five years, climate action failure moves up ahead of extreme weather. Uh, and so that becomes the top priority. Um, so as the uh, COVID narrative uh, seems to be waning, and we'll come on to that in a bit more in, in, in a minute, uh, climate action is the top priority. So the two big green bars, Mike, those are the biggest things that we need to worry about. Uh, don't worry, Patrick, it gets it, better. It, it looks like it's going to be absolutely smooth sailing and rosy for the next few years then, because the first two aren't really a problem. Well, exactly. But let's move on to five to 10 years. And it's not two green bars, it's five green bars now. So uh, we've got five green bars because biodiversity loss, natural resource crises and human environmental damage, they move up to, to within the top five. Well, those are somewhat legitimate in terms of uh, actual concerns. There's some, they're reality-based. The top two, unfortunately, are not debatable. Yeah. Um, so let's have a look at uh, what Matt Williams from uh, the ECIU, which is a, an environmental think tank in the UK, said. Uh, the more we damage the natural world, the more we're likely to come into contact with new diseases and the more extreme weather will become. Oh, so the, how the weather is extreme because of environmental damage? The weather is extreme because of environmental da damage and new diseases happen because of environmental damage. So, so they have actually managed to completely conflate the, the, the risk of pandemic and the climate crisis we just, into one policy area. We just need to square that circle by uh, infectious diseases causing extreme weather. When they get to that point, it will be complete. Yes. Okay, so uh, so let's move on then. And here is uh, the IEA, uh, because of course uh, the this is the International Energy Agency. Uh, they are very concerned that COP twenty six was actually a flop twenty six, uh, and they're particularly concerned about it because coal power's sharp rebound is taking it to a new record in twenty twenty one, threatening zero, net zero goals. So they're saying that. Uh, uh, Coal is the single largest source of global carbon emissions, and this year's historically high level of coal power generation is a worrying sign of how far off track the world is in its efforts to put emissions into decline towards net zero. Um, and uh, they went on to say global power generation from coal is expected 
to, uh, inc to have jumped up by 9% uh, in 2021 to an all-time high of 10,350 terawatt hours. Uh, overall coal demand worldwide, including uh, uses beyond power generation, such as cement and steel production, is forecast to grow by 6% in 2021. The, these, of course, are once they've gathered all the statistics together, uh, that increase will not uh, take it above record levels reached in 2013 and 2014. Uh, overall coal demand could reach new all-time highs as soon as 2022 and remain at that level for the following two years, underscoring the need for fast and strong uh, policy action. And so the, the idea that's being presented here is that uh, COP26 was a failure. Uh, and in a second, we're gonna ask uh, Ian Davis whether that is in fact the case. Uh, but certainly um, coal power generation isn't going anywhere anytime fast. And if you remember, Patrick, uh, uh, that was the main theme from African and other uh, developing economies that we cannot survive without coal because that's our basic power generation capability at this stage. And that was the main theme last winter. You remember when we had the energy crisis in Europe and Germany, uh, the green power shut down, the solar, the wind turbines weren't running. They had to fire up the coal plants. Uh, once again, but this is also creating a knock-on effect because when the coal plants are fired up in the Western countries, they need to pay their carbon indulgence tax for that so that, that the carbon market starts to flourish at that point. And what does that mean for us as the consumers? Well, our prices go up. Yes. So it, again, it goes back to green policy, but let's take a look at COP and see uh, what really happened. Well, we, we will do that. But uh, now here's uh, Ian Davis's first article here, The Not-So-Great Carbon Reset. If you haven't read this yet, if you haven't uh, sent it around your colleagues and friends, uh, then I suggest you do that. Uh, but also part two has just been published in the last few days. Um, and uh, Ian, if I can say welcome to the program. Um, your, your key point here is that COP26 was not a failure. No, I, uh, thanks very much for inviting me, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, no, it wasn't a failure. I mean, it depends on your perspective. If you're the Bank of International Settlements or the World Economic Forum or, or, or someone like that, then uh, it wasn't a failure at all. It was a roaring success. Um, well, well, look, let's let's put that uh, graphic back on screen if we can, because we've got a we've got a little quote from this. Uh, from this uh, article that I'll just put on screen. So what you said here is, uh, at the recent UN Climate Change Summit in Glasgow, COP26, Mark Carney, the UN Special Envoy for Climate Action, formerly Governor of the Bank of England, formally announced the Glasgow Financial Asset for Net Zero, GFANS, uh, first launched in April 2021 by the US Special Presidential Envoy for Climate Change, John Kerry. The initial GFANS progress report states, uh, governments must ensure a well-managed, just transition, including by working closely with industry and finance. GFANS was created to accelerate this process. Its goal is to transform the global financial system. In order to finance the investment in a net zero economy, we must transition the entire financial system alongside every sector of our economies, supporting frameworks and metrics to measure portfolio uh, and sectoral net zero alignment. And so, the first question that occurs to me here, uh, Ian, is um, what is the nature of this transformation? And, you know, clearly uh, COVID has played a large part in that. Yeah, I think COVID has been kind of the catalyst that has enabled them to, to run through a transition that's been planned for at least 30 years. I mean, it, go, it goes all the way back to the 1992 Rio Earth Summit, uh, where uh, Agenda 21 was uh, one of the one of the products from that, 
uh, and in, a, in Agenda 21, um, they made it quite clear that what they what they needed to do was to find some sort of mechanism that would enable them to link climate issues to fight to finance. So they wanted they wanted to create some sort of system of accountancy that would enable you to quantify nature itself as a financial product or a finance or in this case a financial service. Right. Well, look before we before we get on to nature itself as a financial service, uh, let's just let's just put this graphic on screen if we could because this uh, is something that you've uh, uh, developed to, to introduce the global public private partnership. Just very briefly, uh, explain what that is. It's a it's a network. The global public private partnership itself is something that has been spoken about at, at length and. There's a, a, a paper by a pair of researchers called Buse and Walt that kind of give the kind of formal history of the global public-private partnership and how it's developed. And traditionally, it's sort of come from the, the health sector. It was the World Health Organization that were first talking about the, such a thing as a global public-private partnership in 2005. But if we look at it more broadly, it's a way of explaining the flow of policy from around the world or, or around the world. So how does policy, where does policy originate? How, how is that policy disseminated? How is it then sold to us as, as uh, the subjects of that policy? Who enforces it? So the global public-private partnership, when, I think something that, that, that stands out when we listen to the government speak about, speak about their partnerships, you know, their industry partnerships. We often hear the government say, you know, we are partnering with industry on this. There are a lot of, the, I mean, already the World Economic Forum have already formally partnered with the UK government, the World Health Organization, the United Nations and so forth. So there's, it's a network of partnerships between essentially the banks, central banks and the Bank of International Settlement, I would say are, are pretty near the top of that, top of that partnership arrangement. They have, it's a hierarchical authoritarian partnership. Um, and then you've got the think tanks um, and then you have the policy distributors who might be like the World Bank or the IMF. Um, and that cast, then that cascades down, the policy cascades down to national government because it's at, at the, at the up, in the upper levels of that partnership, there, it's very much about policy agenda and governance rather than government. So these are, these are policy ideas that get kicked around in the think tanks. The think tanks come up with an agenda in consultation with other groups like the World Economic Forum and the World Business Council for Sustainable Development and people like that. They have an, an idea where they want the policy to go, but it's not hard and fast legislation or law or anything like that. It's, it's an idea. They put that into some kind of framework. So if we're looking at sustainable development, we could say Agenda 21, Agenda 2030. As a, as a broad policy framework, a suggested way that the world will function. And then that gets converted into policy at the national government level. So we, we receive that policy, which began many, many years ago as an, as an agenda, as you know, hard and fast policy, such as net zero policy and everything that goes with it. And then that, and obviously, then there's legislation that becomes legislation. There are aspects of it that become legislation, and so 
something that is centrally controlled at a world governance level then can then be a policy agenda can then be disseminated around the world to national governments simultaneously which is why they're all seeing you know covid being a, 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 an excellent example you know they all say the same phrases at the same time mm. so you have trudeau you have uh, Johnson, you, you've got everybody around the world all saying things like, for example, build back better and so forth. So the, these these are sound bites that are that are used to sell a global policy agenda. But then each nation, such as there are differences between the way Canada are approaching their approach to net zero and the UK and so forth. So the, the policy agenda comes from a global centralized point and then is disseminated around the world via this network, the global public-private partnership, which is, you know, when they when they talk about, um, uh, I think recently they were speaking about the global public-private partnership for health. Um, you know, it, it often comes up when they say public-private partnership, that's what they're talking about. Yeah. And I think the, the, the important thing to remember about that is that the private part, of that public-private partnership appears to have the upper hand in terms of in terms of pushing through the policy. So the policy is coming from the private sector and being pushed towards the public sector. Yes. Okay. Just a quick question for Ian on, on that graphic there. Uh, on the private side, we see the uh, private central banks, of course, featured uh, prominently there: Bank of International Settlement, central banks. But on the private side, look at the WEF, the World Economic Forum. Who are the members of that organization? Who is funding that organization? You have a lot of the biggest corporations on the planet, the transnational corporations, the Amazons, the pharmaceutical giants, et cetera. How big of a role do they play, uh, the funders of these think tanks, these corporations uh, who fund the foundations and the think tanks? What role do they play in the decision-making process? Or are they kind of there to sort of, I don't know, um, uh, give it a little bit of extra muscle, as it were, in terms of we're all on board with the compliance. What What is your view on, on the corporate side? Yeah, I, I, I would say we're looking at something that is controlled by private corporations. So, so um, for example, I mean, if you look at the list of attendees to Davos, um, the, the, the number of politicians there, they're, they're very much in a minority. And yet, and yet the World Economic Forum, you know, if we, if we focus on the World Economic Forum, and one thing I would say is the, the World Economic Forum themselves are part of this. You know, I think everyone has been very focused on them because of COVID-19, the Great Reset. Everyone has been focused on the World Economic Forum. And certainly Schwab has taken a kind of a, a, a PR lead in, in, in selling some of their, their policy ideas. But if you look at the who attends Davos, politicians, who are invited, so they only invite the politicians that they want to talk to, um, are a very small minority of the attendees. Most of them are from corporate and you know, the banking sector and, and the, the multinational corporations, as you said, Amazon, and the security and intelligence agencies as well. So these, they, these people are setting the policy agenda, I would suggest, and then government's role really is just to, just to administer the policy which they're not creating. 
Okay, okay, brilliant. Thank you, Ian. Now, uh, just to finish this segment off then, then if we just put the graphic back on screen, there's another quote from, from your article here that it is, because you, you, you touched on this already. Um, so the ambition expressed by the IEG, and you can tell us who the IEG is in a second, is so gargantuan as to almost defy comprehension. We're pioneering a new asset class, says the quote, based on natural assets and the mechanism to convert them to financial capital. These assets are essential, making life on Earth possible and enjoyable. They include biological systems that provide clean air, water, food, medicines, and stable climate, uh, human health, and societal potential. The potential of this asset class is immense. Nature's economy is larger than our current industrial economy, and we can tap this store of wealth. And it goes on to say that according to the IEG, the current asset value of the world's economy is $512 trillion, including all financial derivatives. The projected value of assets of, in the new economy they're creating is said to be worth eight times that, an estimated $4,000 trillion, uh, $4, trillion, in other words, $4 quadrillion. Uh, the solution to climate change is a market opportunity unlike any ever seen in human history, you say. So um, just tell us who the IEG is and, and give us your thoughts on that. Yeah, the, uh, they're the Intrinsic Exchange Group. Um, and um, they were founded originally uh, in partnership with a number of groups came together, but notably the, the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, and they're, they're uh, advi advisors to the New York Stock Exchange. So, so when they launched these, these, uh, the idea and something that Whitney Webber's wrote an excellent article about, which I think I've cited in, the, in, my, in my article, um, they wrote they they formally launched these nas, nas, natural asset companies. So this is a form of um, it's an investment vehicle basically to convert nature into uh, what they're calling um, ecosystem services. So if you think um, a natural water source on a, on some land, so they they would give value to that water source. So they say that you know that they would they would use what they're calling stakeholder metrics, stakeholder capitalism metrics, to give a, a, a financial value to that water source, and that would be bundled up into these investment vehicles called natural asset companies, which then private investors can then invest in. So effectively, what they're doing is they are privatizing everything, everything, nature itself. So. Uh, we we might look at a forest and think, oh, that's a beautiful thing, and we are obviously most of us understand the value of forests in, in you know in, in in many different aspects of our environment, but that's not the way they're looking at it. What they're looking at it as that would be a carbon sequestration service. So so a forest would be a carbon sequestration service, which could be bundled into a national a natural asset company. And then that would be rated using, which is something that came out of COP26, using the asset rating system that, that Erki Likkanen announced at the, at the at COP26. Um, and that, those, then that, that, those assets, that, that ecosystem service, would be given a rating. If it's a high rating, then investors will invest in it and you will turn um, potentially the earth and all the reason that they're talking about a four quadrillion um, investment portfolio, potential investment portfolio, is that is because they're going to convert the world into into um, tradable ecosystem services. 
And that is what this has been about um, in terms of sustainable development from day one. That, I mean, you can, you can go all the way back to the um, Club of Rome and that's what they were talking about. And that, that's what emerged in Agenda 21. And that's always been the plan. So, you know, when people said that, that COP26 was a failure, um, it was only a failure if you think it's about saving the planet. If, if, that, if that's what you think it's about, then yeah, it was a failure. But if you understand that it's actually about financializing the earth and converting that into a new form of global economy, then it was a roaring success. It was absolutely, they, all their targets were met. Yes. So, so effectively, and you're talking about the collateralization of, of nature, the repackaging of natural assets as investment vehicles, uh, and what would stop them from re-collateralizing and repackaging, and I'm talking about a subprime, subprime green bubble, the likes of which the universe has never seen before and will never see again. Could this be, eventually, at the end of the road, before they're done with it, the bubble to uh, top all bubbles? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sh undoubtedly it will be. Um, however, you don't know. We, we you know we don't know how long that bubble will keep expanding. It might be way beyond our. I mean, if they're talking about capitalizing absolutely everything, um, which they are, and it's not just the things that we own; it's the things that we don't own as well. Something called the global commons as well. They want to, such as the oceans, the air, the sky, the everything. Everything they want to convert into a financial value system. It could be a um, hundred year. It could be a hundred year bubble. It could be. A, it could be a hundred year bubble. Yeah, I mean they've already got set up a, a hundred and twenty trillion. BlackRock are holding a hundred and twenty trillion, or BlackRock aren't holding a hundred and twenty trillion, but they're talking about potentially holding a hundred and twenty trillion dollars in assets that have already been created. So while everyone has been focusing on the, um, you know, quite rightly uh, on, on COVID-19, um, they have been very busy. They've been busy creating a $120 trillion carbon bond market, um, which will enable this to get the ball rolling, really, and will enable them to. And I mean, another thing as well that, that stands out that this is all taxpayer funded, where we're paying tax in order to subsidize these investments. So we're part of it as well. We are the, the cash cow, if you like, that is enabling these investments to get off the ground. Um, and, and all that's happening while we're focusing on other stuff. Yeah, so, so if we're the seed funders, we should get our dividend. Well, right? we should, we yeah. should. But we won't. <laughs> no, we won't. No. Um, Alex, uh, we, we need to end this segment there, but uh, just have you got any thoughts on what Ian's uh, uh, presented there? Commending him for yet again surpassing his previous best in this article, uh, I would say that we're going to be the cash cows in more way than one, because from time immemorial, slavery, or if you want to dress it up as the, the, the rights to the forced physical and mental labour of people for their whole lives and their offspring, slavery has been by orders of magnitude more profitable than anything else in pre-modern and modern economies, uh, regardless of the state of technology. So if that were honestly, if they were honest enough to factor that into the Model, I think they will be talking about quintillions uh, of investments. Uh, the other thing is that, uh, as Ian has outlined in his speech there and in the article itself, 
the dry run for this, even before the Rio summit, uh, was uh, based around organisations such as the Sierra Club in the late 80s and uh, involved a staged handover or presentation from Maurice Strong, later, of course, fugitive in China, the Canadian, to David Rockefeller. And there is audio recording of, you know, a room full of applause where Maurice Strong says Rockefeller's the man for the new age of this investment. And what's interesting about that is some of the Americans at the time uh, who looked into this found that a lot of the pre-planning was done in California on a ranch owned by the Church of England. Yeah, well, indeed. Interesting detail there. Yes. Yeah, okay, well, look, just before we uh, leave the, uh, the the climate issue, I just want to, once again, want to mention this because uh, the government has decided that they are launching today a new scheme to produce hydrogen from biomass. So, you know, they, they are talking about waste biomass, but it's not exclusively waste biomass by any means. So we already have biomass, in other words, food, uh, going into the production of uh, uh, fuel for uh, internal combustion engines. Um, and uh, now we want to produce hydrogen from it. But the thing that uh, strikes me about this, you know, this is part of the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategies, one billion pound net zero innovation portfolio, as they describe it, which they say aims to accelerate the commercialization of, of innovation, of in innovative clean energy technologies and processes through the 1920s and 1930s. So that sounds all fantastic. But the, th the question that I have about this, uh, this drive for hydrogen, Patrick, has been uh, because what is the uh, output, the emission from hydrogen, from burning hydrogen, and whether it's to drive a car or a truck or whatever it happens to be? Well, of course, that's water vapor. And water vapor is classed as the, as the number one greenhouse gas uh, on the planet. Uh, so if, if we are taking, if we're generating new hydrogen and pushing uh, new uh, uh, water vapor into the atmosphere, what are the climate change impacts of that? Well, we get an answer here because here is uh, climate change um, uh, website. And uh, if we zoom in on this a little bit, the advantage of hydrogen is that hydrogen is burned for heat or used in fuel cells. The only uh, material byproduct is water. Although water vapor is a greenhouse gas, it's very short lived in the atmosphere and is kept in balance by, by the uh, uh, hydrologic cycle, i.e. excess water vapor falls from the sky as precipitation. In other words, rain, right? Now, so what, but we've got to think about the scale of this, because if we are replacing uh, so-called carbon emissions in internal combustion engines and more importantly in uh, electricity generating plant and so on uh, with hydrogen, then the scale of that is a bit beyond just a little bit of extra rain. That is climate change, is it not? If we are, if we are deliberately forcing more, forcing is, is, is the word I'm using here, more water vapor into the atmosphere, which is going to fall as rain? Well, you could ask that question, but it, that's in, inconclusive. Yes. And it's probably impossible to calculate at this point. But then it's also, you know, the, you, you can't add that to the effects of CO2 because we don't know what the true effects of CO2. They could be absolutely negligible as a trace gas. I'm talking about man-made CO2, of course. So in terms of compounding climate change, I don't know. I, I suppose if it did, it would be good for uh, these globalist planners because it could keep the crisis going even more. Even more. And I'm sure that they're uh, they're very interested in that because you know as this agenda goes on, you need an ongoing emergency. Otherwise, things start to fall apart. Right. You don't have the cohesion, so they'll need to increase the extreme weather fear mongering and so forth. Maybe they could turn this around into a a crisis and then say, oh, no, we need to divert to this yes. or use this to tighten the screws even, even further. further. Who knows with these people? Yeah.
Indeed. Okay, if you uh, like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community uh, and your support would be much appreciated and much needed. Uh, and if you uh, find our material on the various platforms, do share it. Uh, absolutely share Ian's articles and do read them if you haven't read them yet. Uh, a brief reminder that uh, hoodies and other items still available on the UK Column shop if you'd like to support us that way and that would be much appreciated as well. Now let's uh, move on uh, to uh, Novak Djokovic. And uh, well, it gets more interesting by the day, uh, Patrick, because they really are going for him. Uh, he seems to become the poster child for the pro-vaccine, uh, pro-lockdown lobby at the moment. Uh, and uh, uh, so this is uh, Spiegel International, uh, where, the results of a where the results of a positive PCR test manipulated. And what they're basically saying in this article is that uh, uh, the coronavirus test result, which Djokovic gave to the Australian government, had a serial number on it, which was 7371999. And that was a positive test from the 26th of December. And this was the justification for him not needing to be vaccinated, is what this article claims. Uh, but they then uh, go on to say that uh, uh, he then subsequently tested negative, uh, but that the serial number on the negative test, which he claimed was from the uh, 6th of January, I think, uh, was had a, an earlier serial number than the one with the positive test. And so they're suggesting that there's been some manipulation uh, going on here and that uh, Djokovic was effectively lying to the Australian government. And of course, the article reiterates this point that other media outlets have made, which uh, this other claim that he that he lied on the on the immigration form and saying that he hadn't traveled anywhere else uh, prior to coming to, uh, to from his uh, source to, to Australia as his destination. Um, and uh, when, in fact, The Guardian had posted uh, an article claiming that a video was available of him being somewhere playing football with some children and the, uh, in between times. In Spain? No, I'm not no, sure. No, it was, it was in between him okay. from Spain to, to, to Australia. So, so uh, the question then uh, for Spiegel and so on is, was he lying? And, uh, but the, the media really going nuts over this man. There is. I mean, Der Spiegel is, is just a wonderful limited hangout and a, a wonderful hangout for the Western intelligence services over the years. But as you can see, they are absolutely one to destroy uh, Djokovic. The Australian uh, establishment, the political establishment, the mainstream media anchors are sneering at him. Yes. And they're, they're, they're just short of making racial slurs. I mean, that's probably the next thing coming. Uh, it's just the, the, the vitriol is unbelievable. So they're, they're accusing him of faking his test. Well, you know, you could easily throw up the defense of, well, it's a PCR test. So who knows what it is? Is oh. it, it positive one minute, it's false the next. And we've been seeing that throughout the whole PCR saga from the beginning. So the point is, here's the last thing. Does Novak Djokovic pose a public health threat to the country of Australia? That's the number one question. And so they're trying to spin it as, no, it's about compliance. Why should he be unvaxxed when everyone else did the right thing and were good soldiers and got vaxxed? If, if that's the level that we're having this debate on, mm -hmm. which is the level that they're trying to frame it, yes. then people should really wake up and take a look at what's going on because it's just gone absolutely bonkers and we have to thank Novik Djokovic for raising this issue up to this level so you can see how ridiculous the debate actually is. Indeed. Okay, well, hold on to your hats folks because the news gets even better. Here is the uh, MHRA, the Medical and the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. They're holding a good clinical practice uh, symposium, a virtual conference 
uh, in March, the 11th, uh, sorry, 7th, the 11th of March, and they're, uh, they've opened uh, it for tickets already. Um, and so uh, what are they saying? They're saying regulatory agencies conduct good clinical practice inspections to confirm that participants are adequately protected, to ensure the reliability of results generated, and to ensure that clinical trials are conducted according to the applicable regulations. Right? Uh, with the recent COVID-19 pandemic changing the landscape of clinical trials and decentralization of clinical trials, regulators have optimized regulatory resources and oversight by increasing collaboration to evaluate the adequacy of clinical trial conduct. The COVID-19 pandemic has necessitated flexibility in trial conduct. You get that? Flexibility in trial conduct. Which means lower standards. Yes and accelerated changes in the clinical trial landscape. Regulators have also provided new guidance on trial conduct, taking a pragmatic and proportionate approach to trials being conducted during the pandemic. Moving forward, it will be important to leverage the use of more innovative tools and approaches to trial design, conduct and inspections, including remote approaches. And as you say, that all, what that all comes down to is we reduce the standards even further. Reduce the regulations, reduce the standards. We'll talk about the Pfizer trials in just a minute. We'll kind of do a little bit of a look under the hood of what Pfizer was trying to pull off with their vaccine uh, trials. But uh, in, the, in the US, so we, we hear this talk about misinformation, disinformation, we need to clamp down on this. This is a major threat. And so just this week, we see uh, the Supreme Court was giving its oral arguments about Joe Biden's uh, federal vaccine mandates. And here is one of the Supreme Court justices, Sonia Sotomayor, who claimed that 100,000 children are in serious ICU condition with COVID and many of them on ventilators. She claimed during a public oral argument, this was live streamed, okay? This is a Supreme Court justice, one of the most important decision makers in the United States. And she's basically telling a, a, ma a major lie here. This is like Jack and the Beanstalk style lie. And so let's just take a look at uh, what she said here. Sonia Sotomayor, she's one of the liberal justices, definitely a hard left justice. She says, those numbers show that Omicron is as deadly and causes as much serious diseases in the unvaccinated as Delta did. We have over 100,000 children, which we've never had before in serious condition, many on ventilators, Supreme Court justice. So she's going to be deciding uh, on this serious issue. And literally, they're just spouting out fake information. So it, it shows you how politicized this, this story is, this argument is. And it shouldn't be because this has nothing to do with science or even to do with scientific fact. It has everything to do with the U.S. Constitution and law. And it is the government within its power to exercise that level of authority over the individual and in the workplace. That's what it's about. So the mm -hmm. science, as crazy as this is, Mike, it shouldn't even really come into it here. So let's just look at how this was uh, basically raided by the Washington Post, and they gave it four Pinocchios by their fact-checking team. Now, that's a big deal because, you know, this is the Washington Post, after all, and it's one of the most fire-breathing liberal publications and defenders of the deep state uh, that you have in America. So uh, Sonia Sotomayor, let's just take a look. Uh, sorry, back to us. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have a, uh, th this question was, was put to Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary. Uh, she doesn't react to questions very well quite often. No, here, and she was uh, told to, to respond to this. And let's just take a look at her response. Okay. Aggressive countering COVID misinformation. So what do you guys think about COVID misinformation coming from the Supreme Court 
And Sonia Sotomayor's false claim that over 100,000 children are in serious condition, many on ventilators. Well, I'm not going to speak to Supreme Court arguments or statements uh, made in those arguments, uh, but I will tell you that what is at stake here is our effort to protect health workers and most importantly, protect patients with the CMS rule and also to make workplaces safer with the OSHA rule, which we have confidence in our legal uh, argument for. So I will leave it to them uh, to decide, but that's what's being argued. She could just as easily be Brezhnev's press secretary. That's yeah. just how ridiculous it's gotten. So totally deflecting on that, doesn't want to answer it. So they've been caught out. So this, this idea that misinformation is a scourge of public health, and it wasn't just a few months ago that Joe Biden's own Surgeon General, and his name is Vivek Murthy, and this is what he said. He says, well, he wanted to, social media to clamp down on what they call COVID lies. And this is what he said, misinformation is a public health threat that has cost people's lives and prolonged the COVID-19 pandemic. I don't see how that's actually factually possible. Yes. But anyway, let's give him this. So what does he say? What are they saying? We've got a Supreme Court justice pushing out the most egregious fake news and misinformation. Yes. Not that the government doesn't do this on a daily basis, but you know they're supposed to adjudicate these things. The Supreme Court should have a higher intellectual standard you'd think so it just it shows you how ridiculous a that the narrative is become on covid and b this idea uh, that we need to fight misinformation and again the biggest sources of misinformation are always and throughout history government number one and number two mainstream press yes there's no debate about that that's an absolute fact on on a level and a scale that no blogger or no uh, people in comment threads on facebook could ever hope to eclipse. Indeed. Alex. The Founding Fathers' arguments, the Federalist Papers, which led to the framing of the US Constitution in 1787, they were repeatedly emphatic that it was the people, no branch of their government, that would sift information true from false information. And uh, as regards uh, Psaki's comments, people might want to go soft on her and say, well, she doesn't want to stir the pot because she's the White House spokeswoman and not the Supreme Court spokeswoman. But you can't let her off the hook there uh, constitutionally. She is saying by dint of that, that the executive has no role in checking or balancing the judiciary, which of course is clean contrary to the express will of the founding fathers in the Federalist Papers in the preamble to the constitution and the design of the constitution, that all three branches of government should act as checks and balances upon each other. Uh, this isn't rocket science to anyone who's read any books, but many people haven't now. And this is one of the reasons why I've started my Telegram channel. You can find it uh, under the name Eastern Approaches Alex Thompson. The direct link is t.me slash East App. And I'm doing daily readings of one of the finest books on this, W. Cleon Skousen's The Making of America. We've just got to the point where Skousen is saying this, actually, all three branches are to check each other. So don't be hoodwinked by this idea in any country, but especially not the US where it's all codified, the idea that it's not our purview. It is the purview of every branch of government to correct every other one. Uh, and indeed, uh, Alex, we may have uh, at the very end of the program, we may have a graphic which uh, which sums that up one quite nicely. Now, let's, uh, let's move back to the UK. And, well, one of the things, one of the narratives that we've been hearing out of the mainstream press over the last number of months is that uh, anti-lockdown, anti-vaccination, these are almost gateway drugs to right-wing extremism. Uh, and uh, anti-lockdown uh, protesters and so on are becoming more and more extreme. They're wanting to hang uh, MPs and stuff like this. Uh, 
Uh, no evidence for that whatsoever. But what there is evidence of is increasing extremism within the mainstream press. And if the, the uh, uh, World Economic Forum is concerned about social cohesion, uh, then one of the loudest voices in any society is the mainstream press. And when we see headlines like this, we've got to throw some doubt on the future of social cohesion. Anti-vaxxers are dumb as breeze blocks. It's time we stop tolerating them, says Paul Baldwin, who's uh, head of comment at The Express. And it's just, it is the most uh, extreme article I think I've read so far on this. I mean, we, during the uh, Christmas special, I suggested we were going to see much more of this type of rhetoric in 2022. But this is the worst one I've seen so far. So uh, he, he says, in the good old days, we had leper colonies. You knew where you stood with a leper colony. Unfortunates who, who could infect the rest of us were unceremoniously dumped there and forced to shout unclean if they had the temerity to emerge. I see no reason similarly unfortunate COVID, COVID vaccine refuseniks should be treated any differently. Hang a bell around their necks and isolate a lot of them would be the actual sensible thing to do, given that uh, those both spreading the new leprosy and selfishly taking up NHS time and money uh, are in the vast majority of cases unvaccinated nincompoops. Thick as breeze blocks, he went on to say. Anyway, because of the apologetic snowflake world we now live on, I'm advised that apparently COVID denier colonies aren't on the table. Pity. And then he goes on to talk about the Italians. He says the Italians, those giants of high culture who saved Western civilization at least twice with the Renaissance thinking, are once again way out in front from today. If you want to get a coffee, ride a bus, use a gym, take part in a whole load of normal day-to-day -day stuff in Italy, you need to be double jabbed because that is what anti-vax is, isn't it? Sorry, he goes on. Sorry, there's a bit of a bit more in between. But then he goes on to say, because that's what anti-vax is, isn't it? A religion. Uh, no need for facts, still less science. Uh, they just get in the way. Uh, you have to believe, brothers and sisters. And uh, I thought there was a heck of a lot of irony in that last statement. But just before I, I get your comment, I just wanted to, to, to ask Alex, um, just, just correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, but in recent decades, in the recent centuries, or at least in the last century, uh, the Italians sort of moved away from their Renaissance uh, uh, roots and headed towards fascism, didn't they? Even in the Renaissance, they had they gave us Machiavelli, didn't they? And uh, think about what happened to poor Marco Polo on his return with the Genoese-Venetian Wars and his sad end. But no, more recently, of course, after the Risorgimento, the unification of Italy, which happened at the same time as Bismarckian German unification, 1870, you got absolutism because of this sad struggle between the papacy and the secular authorities. And uh, yes, you ended up with uh, fascism, which of course arose, arose in Italy at a political level much earlier than in Austria or Germany. Uh, Mussolini's famous uh, quotation about his model for the state, which has never really been revoked by Italy since, is all inside the state, nothing outside the state, nothing opposed to the state. And you're seeing a lot of this uh, in the Italian press now. We probably won't get to it, but I've got a, uh, a clipping of that someone sent me of an Italian broadsheet saying that uh, it's good that immigrant children uh, have to be uh, told to go for a jab when they arrive in Italy, because uh, quite apart from the health benefit, it forces upon them that what mama and papa want is secondary to what the state requires of them. Uh, I'm afraid this is a long tradition in Italian thinking. And although they have some constitutional geniuses like Agamben, uh, they do have this nasty streak in them. What are your thoughts on that article? Well, that, that article, firstly, I'll say, and I agree with everything that Alex said um, there, but uh, no booster, no booster that uh, the anti-vaxxers 
uh, are actually going to include people who have been double vaccinated. Yes. So the point is, if you're using this pejorative term, this term used to be reserved for a small number, a, a sort of marginalized section of society that were backed into a corner by the establishment a few years ago. But guess what? That number now is huge. And that number is growing. It's including people who have been vaccinated. So this pejorative term, anti-vaxxer, is losing its bite. It's losing its cachet. Okay, it's becoming a ridiculous term of derision. And so I'm going to add as well, the vaccine does not stop, obviously, uh, according to the official rec, uh, officials, doesn't stop transmission or contagion. Okay, so therefore, it has, no, it has nothing to do with comparisons to leprosy. This this flippant comparison that the author is making there. Okay, that's number one. It has so therefore, it has no group health benefit. It, it only has therapeutic benefit. But you could get that same therapeutic benefit from therapeutic drugs, which are being suppressed. And herein lies the whole scam. Right. And so that's that's the main point that you need to nail home. So so what is the benefit they're selling? If there's no group health benefit, they're saying it, it it will reduce serious illness and protect you from dying. That's the claim, which we'll show you if that's true in a minute. Okay. But so what they're doing is they're saying, no, it's overwhelming the health services. That's the group health benefit is that uh, the unvaccinated or uh, and this is now this why you're seeing this talking point everywhere. Mm -hmm. The unvaccinated or these false claims that unvaxxed people are overburdening the health system. That's because that's the only group health benefit that they could possibly come up with mm -hmm. because it not in the vaccine. There is no benefit in the vaccine in terms of uh, immune, immunization. Yes. There's none. It's only a therapeutic benefit. And the fact that this has been glossed over by the press and, and gaslit by politicians and the public have been totally bamboozled on this and the pharmaceutical companies are in the background just laughing. Kind of their profits. They're laughing all the way to the bank. Yes. Uh, Ian. Yeah, I mean, I think it's okay for Mr. Baldwin there in his MSM echo chamber to to make all these kind of accusations. But of course, no one can respond to them because if anyone does, if any if any scientists like uh, uh, Dr. Mike Eden or, or uh, Dr. Malone or anybody like that does actually try and answer any of the issues that he's highlighting in or, or saying that he's highlighting, then they get censored. So there is no, he can't, there's no debate. He's safe to say whatever he wants to say um, and can and can say it with without challenge because it's, we're living in an environment, which is something that Cabrera spoke about at the Munich Security Conference, um, that, that it's the infodemic is the thing that matters the most. And they, that's more important and more dangerous than anything like COVID-19. Um, so that's what they're focusing on. Uh, but what what he's basically advocating is slavery, because he's he's saying that, you know, the, the legal concept of uh, bodily integrity no longer matters. Therefore, these people don't, you know, they don't deserve a right. They don't have that right anymore, according to Mr. Baldwin. So I think when when people are talking about saying that, you know, bodily integrity no longer has any value in society, then it's not unreasonable for us to say to them, well, okay, so you, you're advocating slavery. Why don't you, you, you should be more open about that. And just let, let's talk about that. If you believe in slavery, which is what you're saying, then, um, then let's have a debate about whether slavery, we should bring it back because that's what you're talking about. 
Well, indeed, and because uh, of course, if you if you uh, treat one section of society like that, uh, then of course, at some point in the future, it could very well be extended to some other group that you don't particularly like. And uh, I think we've seen that kind of thing before. Uh, but Alex, uh, let's uh, let's move on to to this one. This is a tweet from back to the United States Attorney General Ken Paxton. The attorney generals are very powerful in all 50 U.S. states. Ken Paxton is the Texas attorney general, so the chief law officer whose loyalty is to the state of Texas and the people of Texas, not to any federal authority. He's pointing out that among the many jab mandates that have emanated from the White House has been one trying to order the National Guard about. These are the militias regularly constituted of the 50 states. Their loyalty is absolutely to the governor and people of the state in question. It's The whole point of it constitutionally is that it's a safeguard against being invaded by Washington's troops in the last uh, analysis. And so Governor Abbott and his Attorney General Ken Paxton have saying that they're going to be suing President Biden for his renewed attempt to use federal power to bully state troops to get a COVID vax. There's been quite a few reversals of previous jab mandates going on in National Guard and federal military um, level recently. Uh, the Air Force, uh, I think, has had more success uh, than the, the Navy or seen more success within its ranks. Uh, but this is, of course, a crucial point that the president is not even, but in a blanket sense, commander in chief of the federal military until and unless Congress has granted him those powers for a particular war, uh, for a particular aim and, and time period. This is something that's stressed by Dr. Joan, sorry, John Coleman in his books. It is wrong and sloppy journalism to refer to the, to the president as commander-in-chief as an epithet, even if we're talking federal troops, certainly not state troops. Yeah, And, and I'll add, the, the Navy SEALs just, a uh, uh, U.S. court upheld the right for the Navy SEALs to refuse uh, the vaccine. Their, their conditions of employment won't be affected by that. Of course, the government is pushing back against that. But what Alex is pointing out there is very true. Uh, th this federal mandate by Joe Biden it, it was getting knocked back mm. pretty much in every single level right across society. So what does that tell you? It tells you what we said from the beginning, Mike. This was a blag. This was a blag by government. It was a blag to get everybody to comply voluntarily, knowing full well that this would never fly legally uh, against the rule of law. So they use this as a trick to accelerate the rollout and to get employers to put pressure on their employees and scare their employees with the government in the back with their stick, big stick, waving, but not really able to swing. And so everybody who went for this might be disappointed in the end because by April, all of these might have been pushed back. The Supreme Court may very well rule on, on this or one of the major arguments in the next 30 days. So what happens if, if, if that's the case? There's going to be a lot of angry people as a result of that. We'll see. Well, we'll see. Uh, well, thank you very much to the person that sent this through to Brian, and thank to, thanks to Brian for sending it through to me. But here's a Reuters article. Uh, well, it's actually, this is not the Reuters article. This is the uh, article which caused Reuters to write their fact, fact check. So uh, this is uh, Steve Kirch's uh, newsletter. Uh, back to uh, Bukhart, uh pathology results show 93% of people who died after being vaccinated were killed by the vaccine. Now, uh, the, uh, that resulted in a Reuters fact check article, and uh, that Reuters fact check article uh, mentioned the UK column uh, and pushed uh, through or linked through to this page on the UK column, which is about the About the UK column page. They did not uh, link through to the Doctors for COVID Ethics Symposium 2. Um, directly. Typical trick. Typical all trick. of these fact check articles do the same thing. Yes. They avoid 
a linking to the actual source. Right, uh, because of course they wouldn't want anybody to actually look at the presentation itself. Um, so if you are interested in watching uh, this, the presentation that Reuters is talking about, uh, you can find that on the front page of the UK column website still at the moment. But here is the Reuters article. Fact check, a four-page yet-to-be-peer-reviewed paper is not proof that COVID-19 vaccines cause 93% of deaths that occur after inoculation. Now, the first point to make here is that uh, the uh, Sukrit Bhakti's paper did not, uh, in fact, uh, any publication on this, any formal publication on this, did not mention 93% of deaths. That was uh, the blog post which did that. Okay, so, so keep that in mind, first of all. But what are they saying here? Uh, an online newsletter suggesting COVID-19 vaccines have killed millions of people has based its claim on a single study based only on 15 cases that has not been peer-reviewed and that three experts told Reuters has serious limitations. So they're not denying it. They're saying that, that the paper, that uh, Sukhra Bhakti's paper has limitations. They're not denying it. Uh, so they went to three experts. Who did they go to? First of all, Professor Neil Mabbott, who's personal chair uh, at of in immunotherapy at the University of Edinburgh. And he said that Reuters, he said to Reuters that he'd be very surprised if the preprint passes credible review. They then went to Professor Kevin Conway, who's Emeritus Professor of Applied Statistics at the Open University, who raised concerns over the number of cases, 15 cases, okay? Uh, and then uh, they went to Dr. Rosie Cornish, who's a research fellow in population health services at Bristol Medical School at the University of Bristol. Uh, and she echoed McConway's uh, comments, um, and she said Reuters, this is a study of 15 people who died. All of them had received a COVID-19 vaccine uh, prior to death. This tells us nothing, okay? And so the verdict that Reuters has put forward here is that three experts have highlighted multiple major flaws in the study used to claim that millions have died from vaccine-related deaths. Well, hold on. It's not the study, it's the blog post and is the first point. But let's just look at uh, Sukhrit Bhakti's um, CV for a second. So he has spent his life practicing, teaching and researching medical microbiology and infectious diseases. He chaired the Institute of Medical Microbiology and Hygiene at the Johannes Gutenberg University of Mainz, Germany from 1990 until his retirement in 2012. He's published over 300 research articles in the fields of immunology, bacteriologically, bacteriology, bacteriology, sorry, uh, virology and parasitology, and has served uh, from 1990 to 2012 as an editor-in-chief of, of medical microbiology and immunology, uh, and, was, uh, and that was one of the first scientific journals of its field, founded by Robert Koch in 1887. And then if we look at the, uh, the pathologist who was uh, Bakhti's uh, colleague in this, uh, Dr. Arnie uh, Buchart, uh, a pathologist who has taught at the universities of Hamburg, Bern, and uh, Tübingen, uh, he was invited for, uh, for visiting professorships, uh, study visits in Japan, in the United States, Korea, Sweden, Malaysia, and Turkey. He headed the Institute of Pathology at, in Rüdigen for 18 years. Subsequently, he worked as an independent practicing pathologist uh, and, uh, and so on. So, you know, these guys are massively... So the point, what's the point? Is that Reuters is citing experts, what they call a, statist a statistician from Open University as their expert. And meanwhile, the CVs of the people who are they, they're trying to criticize and debunk here, uh, their expertise far outweighs all of the, quote, experts that the fact checkers are cherry picking Absolutely, absolutely. That's absolutely right. But the and the other key point is that they didn't actually criticize the 
the science itself. They just said that it, it was unproven. Now, one of the things that, of course, Reuters didn't do here was say, OK, there's only 15 cases in this particular paper. Why, why would that be? And, and there's no comment here about, is the pathology being done post-vaccination when people die? Are there any investigations into this or not? And, you know, that journalist... not interested in any of that. No, and that Express yeah. journalist was accusing uh, so-called anti-vaxxers of living, of living in a religion where science doesn't count. Well, there are many serious scientific voices out there, as we've highlighted many times, uh, who are providing a, an opposing narrative to the government narrative. But the, the government narrative is always pursued by Reuters and the other mainstream because they're living the religion. They have taken the religion of of government of whatever the government says, whatever God that is that they're worshiping. Well, they're not only that; they're also worshiping at the altar of the transnational corporate drug cartels as well. So they're they're defending the government line. They're defending the transnational drug cartel line. That's the pharmaceutical industry. That's exactly what they're doing. We'll show you another a few more examples of this in a minute. Okay, so both Alex and Ian want to come in here. So Alex first. Speaking about credentials, uh, a forthcoming five-parter we're going to put out is going to be Dr. Mike Yeadon's uh, important testimony, extremely important, uh, given to the 86th session of Stiftung Corona Ausschuss. The middle part will be the one that people really want to wait for. It's his slideshow on the eye-watering discrepancy in toxicity. Uh, between, and lethality more particularly between the batches of the three manufacturers' products in the US. That's the jabs. Uh, but Eden establishes for the first time anywhere his credentials quite a, that take up quite a long part of my first transcript. So we can't promise it will be daily, but in the next, perhaps in the next week or so, we'll be able to get all five parts out. Uh, but credentials don't matter, you know, because uh, Burkhardt uh, in particular of that duo of the authorship is a, is a foremost forensic pathologist. I have uh, asked a forensic pathologist for comment on this and uh, the off-the-record comment I got back was uh, I don't quibble it but it's a political point being made by Bakhti and Bookhart unless they express it in terms of the total percentage uh, of deaths uh, as, a, as a percentage of those who have been jabbed which is your point again Mike you know how few have been able to get a pathology Bookhart's pretty much the only quality pathologist in the world so far who's managed to to pull it off you know, yeah. as regards credentials as well, it won't fit in today. But if people go to the Eastern Approaches channel on Telegram, I will be sending out anonymized uh, Northern Irish viewers uh, transcript of a crucial part of a BBC interview the other day where the Northern Irish chief medical, medical officer says staggeringly data illiterate things and unprovable things, wrong things, basically, uh, about the efficacy of jabs in the uh, with regard to the Omicron variant. That will be up on the Telegram channel. So credentials, uh, you know, the, the, that, the fact that people are screaming the credentials are not good enough or, or whatever, they're not, it's, in, it's an indication of the narrative being lost. They're not saying this is wrong information. They've already uh, hopped back onto the back foot of it should have been embedded in the mainstream context. Of uh, the, the approved context, which of course is exactly how Ofcom requires anyone who has an Ofcom license for broadcasting in Britain to handle things. That's why people are shut up when they make pertinent medical points, because the contextualization hasn't been done. That is an admission that the data is sound. Yes, and, and we should not forget uh, that, of course, the, the emergency legislation that the British government pushed through, the Coronavirus Act, uh, discourages pathological follow-up, discourages because they want to they want to get the bodies. Uh, burned as quickly as possible. So we've got to cremate as quickly as possible and there'll be no inquiry uh, into into what happened to people. So, uh, Ian. Yeah, I, I think we also need to uh, question the value of peer review. 
because because you know traditionally peer review has been of great value and obviously it's a very important part of kind of the scientific method but if we look at the the the, the problem with the the repeatability of science uh, i mean it's been a long been a problem it's been a known problem that that science in in general and the peer review process is highly subjective um we, we saw that recently with Professor Fenton, the statistician, who was trying to highlight some risks that he'd identified in the all-cause mortality statistics. Uh, he went on um, uh, Majid Nawaz on, on uh, LBC and spoke about that um, and said that, you know, during that conversation, he said, you know, that he, he's had something like 150 papers, peer-reviewed papers um, published um, until he started questioning the narrative. So while he was supporting the narrative, he was having no problem getting his papers peer reviewed. As soon as he started questioning the narrative, he can't get a paper. He can't even get a paper submitted. They're just rejected automatically. So this hammer that is used by by fact checkers to say, oh, well, it's not peer reviewed. Well, of course, if, it, it's quite obvious now that if it does, if the paper doesn't support the narrative, the chances of it being peer reviewed are much much lower uh, and if it doesn't suit the narrative it will probably be rejected as professor fenton noted he's not even bothering to submit papers anymore he's just going straight to um uh he's just going straight to people like ResearchGate and putting the papers out there because he knows there is no point in him submitting them so that's where we are with science that's that's what's happened to science so if we if we're in a situation where science is that subjective and it is based upon political narratives rather than objective science. We are in deep, deep trouble. Yes, couldn't agree more. Well, on that subject of peer review, let's just look at this. Uh, here's a little study that was put out. This is just the news, John Solomon's website. Medical experts shred the latest CDC COVID-19 study, even as agency director echoes lockdown skeptics. We'll talk about that in a minute here. But what are we talking about here? Well, this is a basically a study that was put out, not peer reviewed by the CDC. And, for, and this is what Solomon's saying here, for the second time in less than a month, medical experts pounce on the methodology of a study published by the agency's morbidity and mortality weekly report, which is not peer reviewed. And they go on to say the CDC's COVID-19 and diabetes researchers found that children and teens who recovered from infections are up to 2.5 times more likely to develop diabetes uh, which is uncritically reported across mainstream media on Friday. So they're basically drawing a correlation between children who test positive for COVID-19 and develop diabetes. But there's just a small problem with this uh, study here. And this is the problem. The increased risk of this age group shows the importance of COVID prevention, including uh, vaccinations for all eligible persons, says researchers. Uh, prevent preventing COVID-19 by using tools like masks, vaccines to those who are eligible. But the problem is they left out the obesity variable, Mike. So, I mean, that's kind of a major variable. So yeah. this is like the worst possible science you could do. This doesn't even reach the high school bar for science. And this is what the CD put out and all the mainstream media parroted it and cascaded across all the media uh, last week, mm -hmm. right? There was no fact checking by Reuters or any of the fact checkers of the CDC's work here. And this is just some of the commentary. I won't get into all the details, but here's some peer review going on on Twitter of the two CDC studies. Uh, he's basically saying that 
just using one diabetes uh, ICD code with no other information is too nonspecific. If you're looking at COVID and diabetes and COVID associated with obesity and don't measure obesity, dot, 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 yeah. well, it's not a very good study, is it? This just shows you the mediocre level that government is operating on at every turn during, from the beginning of this so-called pandemic till now. So on this issue of fact checkers, let's just talk about this. We need to ask Mike, who's checking the fact checkers? And there's our spiritual leader, Howard Beale there. He's totally incensed and confused about this whole situation, but let's just take a look at this classic fact check by AFP and Yahoo News. And so the video repeats false claims about safety of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine, says Yahoo News AFP fact check. Uh, Marisha Goldhammer here in Canada. What they're talking about is a video by this organization in Canada that's basically putting together an amazing uh, presentation, Canadians for COVID Care uh, Alliance here. And they're, they're saying that the video is false and it's making false claims that Pfizer's vaccines are not safe. Well, here, here I'll, I, I could go through the whole article, Mike. They, they pick it apart. I could pick it apart, but I'll just show you two portions of this and we'll show you a clip from the video itself. Here they're making the claim that, no, this is a false claim that animal testing was skipped in the development of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine. You see they, they take out this portion of the video here uh, and they're saying, no, that's not true. Well, actually, when you actually look at this slide, the claim that's being made here, we'll go to their slide presentation. They're saying, if you look at the top here, is right there, this section, that in the first three years of normal vaccine development, that's in vitro and animal testing and modeling is during three years. And they're saying, if you look at the bottom, that this was all been scrunched into a few months. That's the claim in the video. So the fact checker has totally misrepresented this, calling it a, she's saying they did animal tests. They mixed in simultaneous human and a few animal oh. tests uh, last year during a two month period. And therefore it was tested on animals. Check that box, move along. Big Pharma is great, safe and effective. That's what the fact checkers, this is unbelievable gaslighting here by this fact checker. And we'll just go on. Here's the next one. They're saying, oh, it's a false claim that pregnant and breastfeeding people are being told that it's safe to take inoculations when it hasn't been proven it's safe for them. And they're saying, no, 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 it's safe on pregnant women, say the fact checkers here. And they brought in the experts. Here's Catherine Gray, attending physician of uh, maternal and fetal medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, I believe that's Harvard. Uh, is, is the lead author of one such study in the U.S. And she told AFP, they called her for a fact check, and she said, there are no safety signals in lactating and pregnant individuals. No, she didn't say pregnant women. Mm. So that shows you the political bent of this. So pregnant persons, apparently, no safety signals. No safety signals does not mean that it's safe. It does not mean that it's risk-free. It does not mean that people are not getting sick or even dying. It's just a, uh, a, a kind of subjective statement there, an abstract statement. Here again, similarly, they called Ontario, a health official here, and said the rates of pregnancy and birth outcomes among vaccinated individuals do not suggest any pattern of increased risk. So cherry picking the Ontario province in Canada and saying that's representative of the safety of the product worldwide. This is what the claim that's being made by AFP. Again, this is more gaslighting by AFP. And what are we looking at here? Well, let's look at this. Let's go to the slides that are shown in the video here. They're specifically talking about 
in terms of the risk, actual risk by COVID-19, it's in an age group 75 and 80 plus. That's the majority of the so-called COVID deaths. And this is the point of the, one of the main points of this video that they're trying to debunk is that you have all of the risk uh, and all of the sort of, you know, death and sickness, whatever, in one specific small demographic. Which just happens to be the normal demographic at risk of death because that's what happens at the end of life. Yes, and that's one of the main points of this. So the fact checkers aren't uh, putting any uh, context at all or, or not even attempting to. They're just yeah. gaslighting, trying to bat it away. We've got a video here. Now, this is an important point. Th this, is what, this will show you the quality of information in this presentation. To, on one specific point, which is, are these vaccines actually effective as the Pfizer and the pharmaceutical firms claim? L listen to this. Many people don't know the difference between relative and absolute risk reduction, so we're just going to show you what that means. Pfizer reported that its vaccine shows a 95% efficacy. That sounds like it protects you 95% of the time, right? But that's not actually what that number means. That 95% refers to the relative risk reduction, but it doesn't tell you how much your overall risk is reduced by vaccination. For that, we need absolute risk reduction. In the Pfizer trial, 8 out of 18,198 people who were given the vaccine developed COVID-19. In the unvaccinated placebo group, 162 people got it, which means that even without the vaccine, the risk of contracting COVID-19 was extremely low at 0.88%, which the vaccine then reduced to 0.04%. So the net benefit, or the absolute risk reduction that you're being offered with a Pfizer vaccine is 0.84%. That 95% number, that refers to the relative difference between 0.88 and 0.04%. That's what they call 95% relative risk reduction. And relative risk reduction is well known to be a misleading number, which is why the FDA recommends using absolute risk reduction instead, which begs the question, how many people would have chosen to take the COVID-19 vaccines had they understood that they offered less than 1% benefit? So I'll just briefly make the point, Patrick, we, we actually made that point that exact point about 18 months ago. Um, that is a point that many people have made over this. And, and if, if at this stage, uh, Yahoo News or anybody or Reuters or anybody is fact-checking that when so many people have covered it over the last 18 months, well, they've had plenty of opportunity to do it before, but... Uh, they should be fact-checking Pfizer, Yes. all these this army of fact-checkers. So if you want to watch that video here, uh, just go to their website, Canadian... Many people don't know... And uh, so we'll go back up to that slide for a second. Yeah, and you just click there, you'll get the PDF uh, uh, presentation just by clicking there. You can download it yourself, watch the video. It's on Rumble as well. It's got like almost 2 million views on Rumble. So this is why the fact checkers are going crazy about it. It's just getting too much traction. So they're trying to shut it down with all their little fact checks. But let's just, on this issue of fact checking, Mike, let's go back and look at the fact check. And specifically, let's look at the author. And there she is, Marisa Goldhammer, AFP Canada. So she's in charge of North America's fact-checking for AFP. And so we, uh, we did a little search here to find out what she's all about here. I've got her LinkedIn profile, and she's the verification and social media editor at AFP. Fantastic title. Congratulations on this exciting new job. But she's been doing it since actually 2018. And so there we go. Let's look at her education. What are her qualifications? 
Well, she's got a bachelor's from American University. Doesn't actually list the, what it's de in. the degree. Okay, interesting. So she graduated in 2002. So she's probably, I don't know, about 40, 41 years old. A John Hopkins University master's finished in 2008. That's interesting. What did she do her master's in, Mike? We don't know. It's not listed there. So I guess that's the problem with maybe LinkedIn. But here we go. Here's the relevant training right here, Mike. You just have to scroll down a little further. And uh, She took an online course with the Knight Center for Journalism of the Americas on navigating misinformation, how to identify and verify what you see on the web. So how to surf the internet and how to read and tell what's true. So a fantastic online course, apparently. And she also took another one, Mike, called Trust and Verification in, in the Age of Information. Of misinformation. Of misinformation, sorry. So, I mean, really exciting online course opportunities here. And that's really bulked out her qualifications yes. to basically say that all of these scientists and doctors are, 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 are misleading the public with their anti-vax uh, propaganda here. So the Knight Center for the Journal Journalism in the Americas, what is that? Well, here it is. Celebrating 260,000 students we've rammed into online courses in the last nine years. Congratulations to the Knight Center for Journalism. So that's it. All you need to do is you need an internet connection. You're an expert in misinformation. Go ahead, Ian. Um, I, I wonder if they're using lateral reading which is something that the fact checkers have said, I think it was full fact, um, said that they use lateral reading. Well, when you look at what lateral reading is, and I'm not joking, uh, this is serious, lateral reading is Googling it, so they Google information, and then they verify it on Wikipedia. Fantastic. Well, that, that sounds that's, like a, that's fact checking. That's foolproof, Ian. I, I can't <laughs> see where they go wrong there. So, and this is all you need to know, and we'll just say this is the truth about the fact checkers here. And the truth about the fact checkers is this. Fact checkers are not real journalists. Let's just get that straight. Everybody at home, read carefully and understand what we're telling you here. Secondly, very often fact checkers are biased. And that's been proven many, many times. It's even been admitted by Facebook. Okay, fact checkers are funded by vested interests. Some of those positions within AFP, within these organizations, they're funded by external sources. They're funded by stakeholders, okay? So these are not independent fact checkers. They're, they're designed to do a business for the people who are paying their wage, okay? Fact checkers are paid to reinforce government and the corporate narrative. That's 100% true. I don't think anybody can rightly argue with that. And lastly, who is checking the fact checkers? And that's the main point, Mike. Who's checking the fact checkers? And it seems like nobody but us and a few people in this sort of independent media are bothering to check the fact checkers. Yes, okay, well look, uh, just uh, that, that's a fantastic segment there, Patrick, but just briefly on this one, please, because I want to get Alex in before we end. Uh, Pfizer promises Omicron vaccine will be ready in time for the Q1 earnings report. You think this is satire, don't you? But it's actually 100% true, but this is the Babylon Bee. So it is a satirical website. They are taking the mickey here, but it's actually, 100% true. They are trying to get it in by March, aren't they? Yes. Yes, the CEO announced they've got a special uh, Omicron vaccine ready for March. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? So uh, uh, Omicron will be sort of gone by then, right? Yeah, well, you, at well, this rate. Yes. Right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, look, uh, Alex, I know we're, uh, we're running out of time here, but uh, let's just run through some of your 
material here, and we'll start off with uh, with this one. Uh, and uh, the question yeah. is, under what circumstances are you required to have a vaccine? Well, here we have a notice board for a local branch of Caritas, a worldwide Catholic charity of a very long pedigree. Here's an Italian notice board of theirs, which says that in order to obtain food or clothing from them, from their soup kitchen and clothing depot, you need to have a COVID jab. So there you are. You, you're allowed to starve and freeze if you don't have a COVID jab. And that will be Caritas. That will be Christian love, apparently. Uh, so let's see what else is going on in uh, the continent. Uh, the Swiss uh, public broadcaster RTS is reporting. Uh, this is very much like what we were talking about with the fact checkers, except it's being presented as news here. It's, uh, hey, everyone, you shouldn't do this. Uh, the, the headline is that voluntarily inoculating yourself in the sense of exposing yourself to COVID in order to get a health pass under the idea that you now have antibodies and can demonstrate you've had it and recovered is illegal and dangerous. And if you tap that again, you will see that RTS is at pains to point out that if you uh, obtain uh, some saliva from somebody who's had COVID in order to try to get yourself exposed and recover, you could be facing a five-year jail stretch in Switzerland. And of course, they are uh, bringing in uh, me medics from various can uh, cantons, Geneva, uh, Neuchâtel is mentioned, uh, Swiss city, uh, in order to impress upon people that you really shouldn't do this. So what um, I take sorry, away from sorry, that Alex, is just how the... Would uh, they, how would they demonstrate that? How would they prove that you had been snogging someone with with covid in order to catch covid uh, th these are the swiss uh, mike they're very good at passing bylaws on whom you're allowed to snog and when you're allowed to hang your washing out and when you're allowed to flush your loo and no i'm not joking they do have laws on all these things so um yeah it's also flying a kite for the idea that we've seen also as ian davis has pointed out in his articles recently uh, that going out in public uh, while unjabbed or whatever uh, could soon be uh, interpreted by police it won't be in primary legislation this way but it could be interpreted by police uh, as an arrestable and indictable offence uh, if they if they dress it up as deliberately infecting, in this case it would be others, but uh, in, um, in in the Swiss case it's yourself. Uh, back to France, and before anyone gets uh, their uh, whatnots in a twist about this image on screen, it's not an extremist uh, cross, it's actually General de Gaulle's tombstone, it's the Gaullist cross. This French website, NS2017 on WordPress, is reporting, this is the only French original I can find, it's not a transcript of the uh, of the verdict, but it's reporting there's been a very worrying development after a gentleman passed away who had left his children and grandchildren a multi-million euro uh, life insurance scheme because he'd run uh, a company in the Paris region in Versailles. Um, the insurers were sued in the French court at a low level, at a tribunal, so a court of first instance for civil cases, uh, because the insurers wouldn't pay out. And if you tap that again, you will find, and I don't have the um, the original details, I'm afraid, but uh, the ruling was that the gentleman had actually, by being jabbed and dying, had committed suicide. You can see it in line four of the extract on screen. Uh, the reason being, here we see the flip side that we've always said was coming, that when it gets to the courts and it's politically sensitive, they say, ah, no, you see, there was no law in place requiring you to get jabbed. Uh, of course, they'll have difficulty in Austria, Germany, and for the senior citizens also now Italy and Greece improving this but apart from that even in you know very close to to um mandate uh legal mandates uh countries like france and some of the neighboring countries when it gets to trying to get the insurers to pay out you'll be told no 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 you chose to get that jab you, you knew it was dangerous it's not really gone through all the trials so you've killed yourself mate 
that's the level of sympathy you can expect from the the French courts. Uh, do we have time for a bit more on this? Yes, segment? yes, yes. Uh, keep going, Alex. Keep going. End. So Very we've good. got uh, we've got the video right. from Mark McGowan now. Yes. Uh... This is an important message to keep Aboriginal people safe. And the young message a proper important one to keep everybody safe one. You can die from the corona or get really sick. You will again pass away from this corona or you will again get really sick one. It's time to get the corona needle to keep people and country strong. Dijan, it's time to get them this needle Longa Corona, to keep them but all the people and country proper strong one. The Corona Needle will protect kids, old people, men and women. Well, the young Corona Needle got to keep them a safe one for all the kids and for all the men and women. Many people around the world have already had the needle. Big more people all around the world been already getting but their needle. It is free and it's safe. Dijan, that needle black rona is free one and is safe one. Right, Alex, uh, we, we get the Can't. point. That, that, that is just quite yeah. incredible. That is Western Australia State Premier Mark McGowan, who's kept his nose a bit cleaner than some of his fellow uh, state premiers, although it's uh, it's not easy to, to, be, to be less uh, conspicuous than some of the other state premiers in, in COVID times. But McGowan here is not having himself interpreted into an Aboriginal language in which uh, Western Australia is rich. He's having him himself interpreted from English, as spoken by Anglo-Celtic, as they call them in Australia, white Australians, into Aboriginal English. And the poor lady is reading rather nervously from a script, so it's not interpreting either. It's actually something in the literal sense scripted. So uh, we were talking earlier about uh, racism coming into the Australian mainstream with regard to Djokovic because he's supposedly a backward Slav. Well... Um, we're getting the same uh, approach, I think, resurfacing towards the Abos as well, as we've seen in the Northern Territory. So yes. uh, we're going on to uh, the Five Eyes countries here, of course, because uh, Yidan in the forthcoming series we're transcribing says, in even in the first transcript we're going to uh, put up, that a sad moment for him was to realise that the Five Eyes countries uh, were in the lead with uh, the COVID narrative. Uh, and indeed, an earlier slide you put up showed that the uh, UK Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Authority was having the FDA and Health Canada sit in uh, on its symposium. So in, in intelligence terms, that would be a three eyes. That would be called a Canucus, um, Canadian, UK and US eyes only conference, not applicable to the Southern Hemisphere. It really reminds me of the old GCHQ days that does, uh, that the Canucus or the, the, the five eyes are in the lead. I did have more examples, but I think we're on the stops for time. Uh, yeah. Um, look, I'll tell you what we'll do, Alex. We are on the stops for time. Just... Uh... Let me just move forward. And while while I'm moving forward through through here, why don't you just uh, tell everybody about your your second literacy series article, which is now on the front page of the, the website? 
Certainly. We've seen a number of times in the news just now that literacy is crucial. And we know if we've been following the likes of John Taylor Gatto and Charlotte Thompson Isabit that the dumbing down of the Britain and America in particular was deliberate and has taken a long time to do. My father has always uh, has been a lifelong scholar of the biblical aspects of this. So we've got to the middle part of the conversation I recorded with dad late last year, which is about who benefits from us not being able to read so well. That's now up on the website as um, an embedded audio of a half hour clip and I've transcribed it with many useful links below that. If you tap that you'll find that there are some key insights uh, that Dad brings such as in bold there we cannot hope to stand at the whole tide of cultural decline but what we can do is make sure that those who are interested are able to hold the knowledge until some common sense comes back into culture. Uh, towards the end of the piece, he adds uh, more details to that uh, about the creation of the new universities, the insistence that anyone who wasn't state accredited could no longer issue decree degrees. A lot of, especially in the United States, actually, a lot of very good places that were never degree mills were, were taken offline, basically, uh, well, but, uh, had their ability to issue diplomas. Um, uh, crushed by this, but Britain more particularly. So it's the state alignment of education. Uh, so to, I think it will be uh, something that enlivens people and makes them a bit wise. And why is literacy important? Because the uh, the level of literacy that we now get, I think you have that University of Bristol slide that we can just uh, ask people to, to read in their own time. It's the next one. Yeah, well, I won't read all this out, but why don't you put that on screen just for a few seconds and people can freeze that. This impenetrable gunk is what's coming out of the better British universities now, the red bricks. Uh, this is specifically on literacy. Not one sentence there is grammatical. Right? This is deliberate. And you can see it particularly purely in, in this example because it wants us to get into witchcraft and magic instead of being able to read. So Dad has got his, his lifelong insights really in this, in this script as to how we teach people to read. Hint, the key is one-to-one -one patience. If you're told this child or teenager will never read, sit down with them one-to-one. -one. It will probably be the first time in their, in their lives that anyone's done it for them and get them slowly to build up the confidence to read after you. And it can be done. OK, thank you very much for that. And I do recommend everybody listens to that. Now, we're just going to end on two things here. We've got, well, first of all, the press seems to be doing, following everything that we've presented in this, in this, uh, this news programme, the press does seem to be in some areas uh, doing a mea culpa. Everyone's noticing this, that they're backtracking on the COVID narrative. OK, so here, here's another example of it. This is from Denmark. And uh, here we have uh, uh, extra bladet, uh, uh, sorry, and... Uh, Let's just do a quick translate of what this says. Uh, we failed. So this is, uh, okay, it's a tabloid in, in, uh, in Denmark, but they're saying for almost two years, the press and the population have been uh, almost hypnotically preoccupied with the authorities' dairy, daily corona nonsense. Uh, we have uh, stared at, at the oscillations of the, of the number pendulum when it came to infected, hospitalized, and deaths with, corona, with coronavirus. And we've got the meaning of the pendulum's smallest movements laid out by experts, politicians, and authorities who've constantly warned us about the, do, uh, the dormant corona monster under our beds, a monster just waiting for us to fall asleep so it can strike in the gloom and the darkness of the night. The constant mental alertness has worn out tremendously, uh, has worn us all out tremendously. This is why we, the press, must also take stock of our own efforts, and we have failed. We've not been vigilant enough uh, at the garden gate when the authorities were required to answer what it actually meant uh, that people were hospitalized with corona and not because of corona because it makes a difference uh, and so they so they went on so uh, another uh, mainstream outlet uh, deciding that it's time to hold their hands up and say 
we made a complete mess of this. Echoing what we were saying as early as March and April of 2020, right? Right. That there's a difference between dying of COVID and dying with COVID and comorbidities are routinely being ignored. Now it's being addressed. Even the CDC admitted, and I'm going to say this incredible, even CNN has, has done a pivot on this, believe it or not. We'll leave you this last clip here. Let's roll this. On. Well, we're going to show this last video, okay. and then we've got one last, uh, we've got a cartoon to end off with, okay. which will just uh, sum this up. But let's have a look at the CNN clip here. So the hospitals are still stretched thin because of this, so I'm yeah. not trying to take away from that. But if 40% in some hospitals, 40% of the people who have COVID don't necessarily have problematic COVID. They're there because they got in a car accident. They get, they're there because right. um, you know, they, they bump their head. And they're being included as in the hospital with COVID. That number seems kind of misleading. Yeah, I agree, Jake. It surprises me that they have not been able to parse out that data more carefully. I think the data that uh, uh, Dr. Olensky is quoting is from New York State, and we've been following that data as well. And I can show you what we've seen, uh, sort, of, sort of tracks with what she said. But out of all the patients that are in the hospital, about 57%, these are COVID patients, admitted because of or complications from COVID, 43% admitted for other reasons and then diagnosed with COVID. Uh, I think, you know, we, there needs to be transparency about that uh, in terms of for or with COVID. The only thing I will tell you, Jake, I again, working in the hospital is that at the time someone is then diagnosed with COVID, even if they didn't come in for that reason, it does take up uh, a lot of resources then in terms of infection protocols, personal protective equipment, more testing, all that kind of stuff. So even though that may not have been the initial impetus to bring him in the hospital, it just requires a lot, a lot of energy and resources uh, on behalf of the hospital staff and, and, and the, the testing and all that sort of stuff. So they, we need to get better about being able to see this data. New York State, I think, is one of the few states that's presenting it that way for or with COVID, but other states should follow suit. The American Heart Association, I'm sorry, American Health Association says they have a hard time sort of separating out that data. But clearly, New York State's been able to do it. Other states should do it as well. Yeah, we're two years into this, and to, we need the clearest picture possible. If somebody's in the hospital with a broken leg and they also have asymptomatic COVID, yeah. that should not be counted as hospitalized with COVID, clearly. Right, yes. well, that, that's quite spectacular. As you say, we were making that exact point uh, at the beginning. months ago, yes. Two years, two years almost, ago. almost two yes, years ago. Almost two years Thank ago. you, yes, that's right, Jake Tapper. Thank you. It's been almost two years. Thank you for finally catching up. Thank you. For, and look at all the damage that you guys are responsible for, for covering up the, what you just now admitting uh, two years later. It's just breathtaking, Mike. Uh, so we will leave you all with, uh, with this last thought. Alex? This is for those who don't have the video on uh, a cartoon about journalism. It's a before and a now situation. The before situation is a, a crowd, the public, uh, who have a journalist out front of them. So the journalist is carrying a microphone towards a public speaker, a politician or a, a bureaucrat, an official, and is asking questions with his back to the public and his front to, towards the, uh, the uh, official holding him accountable. The now situation is that the speaker is speaking from the podium, the journalist is facing in the same direction as the public official and instead of a microphone he has a tannoy a bullhorn uh, in his hand and he's megaphoning i think that the, the, the journalistic word now is amplifying the voice of the trusted official towards the sheep-like public who no longer get anyone to ask questions on their behalf except of course uk column and the likes of us 
Yes, indeed. Okay. Well, perfectly look. illustrates the situation. Yes. Perfectly. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, look, we got we got to leave it there for today. I want to say thank you very much, Patrick, as usual, for joining us. Now, Patrick's here on a Wednesday because uh, uh, you're traveling this weekend. Oh yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, good. And uh, uh, so Brian be with us on Friday, one p.m. as usual. I want to say thank you to Alex and uh, thank you, massive thank you to Ian Davis as well for joining us today. Hopefully, we'll see much more of Ian in the not too distant future. We will be back in a few minutes on the main live stream for a little bit of extra. Uh, and as I say, in the meantime, we'll be back uh, on the for the main news on uh, at 1 p.m. on Friday as usual with Brian. And I hope to see you then. Bye-bye.